chromosome. Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. It's time now for the People's War Radio Show, where we do talk about the main virus. And that is colonialism. Here on the People's War Radio Show, we talk with healthcare workers, activists, revolutionaries, authors, teachers, and regular people from the African community. We aim to bring you an African internationalist analysis on all things important to winning our freedom from colonialism. The root of all our problems. Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. On June 17, 2021, President Joseph R. Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act making Juneteenth a national holiday. Alongside the opening of the National African American History Museum in Washington, D.C., the Legacy Museum that showcases the history of lynchings in Alabama, and the National Civil Rights Museum in Jackson, Mississippi, the establishment of Juneteenth as a federal holiday in the United States marks a particular moment in the African struggle over the power of history and remembrance in the U.S. with international implications. In the colonial media and amongst liberal left sectors of the mainstream political parties, the U.S. government recognition of Juneteenth is being observed as an important landmark. Yet the African working class masses have met this gesture with a mixture of skepticism and outright rejection. One popular meme being circulated on social media has a white man stepping over a host of issues Africans have been organizing around, such as voting rights police violence, reparations, and the issue of critical race theory in schools to the long reach of making Juneteenth a national holiday. Africans see this as an empty gesture. Juneteenth is an abbreviation of the term June 19th. It is said to commemorate June 19, 1865, the day that the United States Army General Gordon Granger arrived at Galveston, Texas, and delivered General Order No. 3 a public transmission of the Emancipation Proclamation. This was over two months after the official end of the Civil War and two and a half years since the Emancipation Proclamation. Texas was a hotbed for settler colonialism, colonial enslavement, and colonial violence, such as lynchings. At least one in four white Texas families owned enslaved Africans, and enslaved Africans were one-third of the population. During the Civil War, Texas was the only state to register an increase in its enslaved population as it became a refuge for the colonial Southern slaveholding class. During the post-Civil War period, Texas had very high rates of colonial violence against African and indigenous people. Between 1865 and 1868, there were over 1,500 acts of colonial violence against Africans alone. Mexican and indigenous people endured similar attacks. Africans were not given freedom from colonial slavery. They took it. Juneteenth did not emerge in isolation. It emerged as a part of an African tradition of holidays and public celebrations in the United States that dated back to the 18th century. In other states, Africans celebrated things like Jubilee Day, Abolition Day, Freedom Day, Emancipation Day, and Surrender Day. Surrender Day was celebrated in Virginia and the Carolinas and was clearly meant to antagonize the white North American community in those states. These were African working class traditions, 
created to place control of history in African hands and allow Africans to reclaim their rightful place as the architects of their own destiny. Africans in the U.S. publicly celebrated the Haitian Revolution, the Cuban War for Independence, and the overthrow of colonial slavery in the Caribbean. Africans even advocated for the public observance of Nat Turner's birthday. A clear sight of political struggle, Africans were attacked, publicly ridiculed, and jailed for these celebrations. This includes the earliest of Juneteenth observances. Progressive sectors of the African working class still embrace the revolutionary practice of public commemorations in opposition to colonial standards and opportunistic co-optation. Today we speak with one of them, Chiwanisa Luzolo, who's a resident of the Houston area. Chiwanisa is the Information and Education Coordinator and Secretary for the All African People's Development and Empowerment Project. She coordinates the Marcus Garvey Youth Program and works with the Gwen Archie Community Garden in the Fifth Ward of Houston, Texas. She is also developing a curriculum for the Marcus Garvey Youth Program. Chiwanisa was a member of the African People's Socialist Party. Welcome to the show, Chiwanisa. Uhuru, thank you for having me. Uhuru, Chiwaniso. Some people call you Chiwo for short. Is it okay that I call you Chiwo? Yes, that's fine. Okay, Chiwo. Recently, the All African People's Development and Empowerment Project held its annual Not Yet Uhuru Juneteenth Festival at the Gwen Archie Community Garden in Houston, Texas. You all were not able to hold last year's event publicly due to COVID. This year, you held your first public Not Yet Uhuru Juneteenth in two years. How was it, and how long have you been doing it? Uh, We've been holding Juneteenth for seven years, and it's a dynamic festival with amazing local talent, and this year was no different. We headlined a group called Ray and the Matritones, and yeah, it was a great show for the community. We had food, activities for the kids, and some really dynamic speakers as well. Chiwo, you mentioned that your Not Yet Uhuru Festival was headlined by the Houston band Ray and the Majortones. One of the songs Ray and the Majortones performed at the festival was the 1968 hit song, Tighten Up, by Archie Bell and the Drills, a famous band also from Houston. Let's listen to Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drills. Tighten it up now. 
I noticed that this year's event was renamed in honor of our fallen comrade, Omawale Kefing. Can you please tell our listeners who Omawale Kefing was? Yeah, uh, Omawale Kefing was a revolutionary. He was a member of the African People's Socialist Party. He was the political editor for our newspaper, The Burning Spear. And as anyone who was in the party knows, he was he was a giant of the African Revolution and just a brilliant organizer who would serve his people until the day that he died. Kefing really set the standard for any serious revolutionary, especially if you consider yourself an African internationalist. Kefing was really the heart of our APDEP community garden, which was named in honor of his mother, Gwendola Archie. And he's deeply missed here in Houston. Yeah, he led a lot of different uh, campaigns uh, throughout the years. Uh, what are some of those campaigns he led? Uh, one of the ma- the most major campaigns that uh, Fing led would be the Desi Woods campaign, um, I think, which is really familiar with our party. And Desi Woods was a young sister who was accused of attacking a police officer who had raped her. Um, and Fing also was the spearhead for our Juneteenth celebration. Um, that's another major campaign that he led here in Houston, Texas. Right, right. Uhuru, uhuru. Yeah, he really was a grassroots uh, organizer. I know he was the person that they sent in uh, when the party came into Philadelphia in defense of the MOVE organization after the MOVE uh, family had been bombed uh, by uh, the city of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Well, he would always say things like, you know, you, you never leave empty handed. So, uh, you know, you go into a community, you organize and, uh, you know, there's always a political victory uh, uh, that comes out of that. Uhuru, as you noted, this year's Juneteenth, not yet Uhuru, was renamed the Juneteenth Omawali Kefing Freedom Festival in honor of our late hero. At the festival, Kobina Bantushango, the African People's Socialist Party Southern Region representative, gave a tribute to Kefing. Let's take a listen. And my, like she said, my name is Kobina Bantu Shango. I'm the uh, Southern Region Representative of African uh, People's Socialist Party. And this this year is the first year. I know last year was, was crazy with COVID and all the stuff that's going on. So this is the first event in person that we done did since uh, COVID. And actually, this is the first Juneteenth that we done did without uh, 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 K-Fiend being in that house across the street. You know what I'm saying? So this is a significant thing. And we have we have a responsibility to, to build this Juneteenth every year and make it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So where this 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 uh Brill Street may not hold it, we might have to go next door to the park over there. You know what I'm saying? So this is what we have to do because we cannot let the uh, work that K Fiend done die. We have to make sure that we when we say long live K Fiend that that means that we really long live K-Fiend means that we're going to continue the work that K-Fiend has done right here in Fifth Ward. We're going to continue the work that we have to build Houston. We have to build organization in Houston because there is a lot of a lot of uh, information out here and a lot of uh, movement that's going, but it's like people want to want to recognize the the um, they got the symbolism of what it means to fight for freedom, but they don't have they don't have the context of, of what we were fighting for. You know what I'm saying? It's like the symbolism without the actual, you know, the principles that we were standing for. And that's what we have to be able to help people understand that it wasn't just people marching around with guns, it was people talking about uh, serving the people. You know, so they, don't, they talk about the guns, but they don't talk about the breakfast programs. They talk about the guns, but they don't talk about the health, the free health clinics. We, they talk, we, we got a, a community garden over here that we gotta build. 
we got to really do work and build organization here. So when we say long live K Fing, that we make sure that that's what that means. That, that we continue to work that K Fing have and uphold our veterans and make sure that all the work that we do is going to be in honor of him, not just in words, but in action. So long live K Fing. That was a tribute to Omawali K Fing by Kobina Bantushango. African People's Socialist Party Southern Regional Representative. Uhuru, um, Chiwanisa, you mentioned Gwen Archie. Um, can you tell us about Gwen Archie or who that was? Yeah, Gwen Archie was Kay Fing's mother, and she's a longtime supporter of the garden. Uh, her home, which was Kay Fing's family home, where he also eventually would live, was a headquarters for APBET for many, many years where we held all of our meetings and yeah, Gwen Archie is just someone who in APDEP we really appreciate and we really hold up as a, a APDEP supporter, a longtime APDEP supporter. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Now, uh, Chiwo, you've lived in Texas for about five years. How have you experienced the public commemoration of Juneteenth in Texas? What is similar and what do you feel is explicitly different? about the Juneteenth celebration that you coordinate versus the other popular observances of Juneteenth? Uh, I guess what I would say what is similar with our Juneteenth to others is that it is a festive event. You know, um, We do celebrate the struggles of those who came before us, other revolutionaries, such as Omawali K-Fing, to get us to where we are today. But we also recognize that where we are and that a Juneteenth celebration is more like a stop, but it isn't the destination. So our Juneteenth uh, like a lot of others, is a music festival, but ours is one with a revolutionary message that you won't get in anywhere else. You know, it comes with the scientific understanding that Juneteenth, you know, the reason that we call it not yet a Hoover is just that we're not, you know, free. And we understand that there's a continuation of the struggle. So it's definitely, you know, a projected struggle. And our Juneteenth is an organizing event. Oh, oh, oh. Do y'all have, uh, you know, the red soda and a smoked turkey legs? <laughs> well, this year we had a crab boil, so we did a bid. We had a crab boil. We also had barbecue. We had the red soda going, of course, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, that's 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 absolutely that's absolutely mandatory. It for, was the first for, thing on our list. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have it. And, and they call it pop, right? Red pop. In Ohio, they do. Down in Texas, oh. they say soda. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> so how have the Africans in Texas responded to the United States government observation of Juneteenth as a federal holiday? Um, It was interesting this year with Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday right before the actual day of Juneteenth. So I think here in Texas, we've seen an increase just in celebrations and a real attempt of the government to control the narrative of the holiday. Uh, for example, in Galveston, they created a mural called Absolute Equality, and it depicts uh, Gordon Granger and Abraham Lincoln alongside Harriet Tubman and another enslaved African. I think his name is uh, Estevancio. But it's just, you know, the absolute absurdity of it. So as a whole, the African working class sees the holiday as just another empty gesture. You know, Texas has experienced harassment, all kind of brutal police violence against us. And we've been in terrible so-called natural disasters have been left to die. So Juneteenth being a federal holiday is, is, is hollow to us. Yeah, yeah. Estebanico. Estebanico. Uh, Estebanico, thank you. Yeah, yeah. An enslaved African that was brought over by, you know, Spanish colonizers and uh, served sort of as the uh, as the guide, uh, the same way that that guy York or Sacagawea or something like that had served for the colonizers of Lewis and Clark. And yeah, but it's just kind of like, like, you know, the absurdity of that, because, you know, Espanico was like in like what the 14, the 1500s. Uh, uh, and, you know, it, so, so it's really, like you said, just a, um, yeah, the, 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 that's kind of, it's kind of just, 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 I guess, awkward, right? You know, Jack Johnson was from Galveston. And so many other uh, Africans uh, that really stood up for African liberation was from that area. Uh, one person that you all hold up was um, out there is Carl Hampton. Uh, can you tell the people who Carl Hampton was? Yeah, Carl Hampton was a revolutionary here in Texas. We actually participate in a celebration here. Uh, the anniversary of his death um, was the last one. But every year there is an anniversary celebration that the Panthers here have. Um, 
And it's something that we participate in. And just like I said before, you know, Juneteenth is a holiday to really uphold previous revolutionaries. And Carl Hampton was one of the originals, one of the OGs, you know, and a lot of people hold the Panthers to a part of their revolutionary struggle. And you can't talk about the Panthers without talking about Carl Hampton. You were listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Chiwaniso Luzola. So, who, Chiwaniso, you all have historically called Juneteenth, Juneteenth, not yet Uhuru. This is a term that stands in direct opposition to the colonially imposed Juneteenth National Independence Day, as it has now been branded by the U.S. government. Why do you say not yet Uhuru? Uh, Our celebration recognizes that Africans in 2021 are not free. We recognize that our struggle is not and was never for absolute equality, you know, to white people like Lincoln or Granger. And I've even read articles calling the order signed by Granger radical, you know, the same order that told slaves to remain with their masters and to collect wages from them. So our celebration informs African people that our struggle isn't over. Like Kay Fing once said, if you free a captured lion into the wild, chances are you won't see that lion again. But here in America, Africans were quote unquote, set free on stolen land and released into the hands of the same people who enslaved them and at their mercy to expect, you know, some so-called absolute equality. And history has taught us that those were some of the emptiest words that were ever written. So they didn't return Africans to the homeland of Africa. They didn't reimburse us for stolen labor and so much more. So our celebration is one of an ongoing revolution, not one that it, that ended with the stroke of a pen while African people still remain a, a subjugated and a, a colonized people. Uhuru, Uhuru. So let's talk about some of the material basis for why we say not yet Uhuru. The African community in Texas had been hit very hard by COVID-19. Last year, the Houston area had some of the highest numbers in the U.S. Can you tell us about that experience and how is the African community doing now? Yes, it's an ongoing struggle. You know, Africans, wherever we're located, are always deemed the essential workers. And we've been forced in many cases to work through this pandemic and still returning to small cramped living conditions that made it impossible to quarantine. So the numbers have been staggering, both with just people who have contracted COVID-19 and the deaths from COVID-19. And you add to that the treatment we receive in the healthcare system, you know, those who have made it through to this point with their lives are still dealing with the daily struggles just of colonialism. And a lot of families have lost their breadwinners and are trying, you know, just to find new ways to survive. Uhuru, Uhuru. What was some of the outreach that y'all conducted to fight COVID-19 on the ground in Texas? As a member of APTEP and being on the People's War Team, our role was really twofold, just helping to provide those materials that we distributed into the hands of our movement into the African community. Uh, We distributed things with regulations on how to minimize your risk during the pandemic Uh, developing and distributing flyers, posters to put throughout the community, creating content for our website to keep people updated with COVID news. And we provided resources to survive the colonial virus called COVID-19. And APDEP also developed a free COVID-19 telehealth program that gives Black people access to revolutionary healthcare providers. We developed and hosted our Ask the Doctor series, which has been live on Facebook uh, since the start of COVID-19 and has allowed the community to be able to ask questions, you know, of our live doctors, especially in those areas where people can't afford to go to the doctor, you know. And we're actually hosting another webinar this Sunday at 12 p.m. titled Africans United with Cuba Confronting COVID-19 in the U.S. Blockade. So just the continuation of the work has been, you know, both on the ground and just in any way we can to help African people combat this pandemic. Oh, Chiriniso. Now, uh, your community garden also grows fresh food and things like that. So uh, how does your promotion of healthy food and healthy eating and things like that really also uh, serve as a um, collective effort to uh, fight against not just COVID-19, but overall, the overall uh, implications and contradictions that Africans face due to uh, colonialism? Thank you for that question. And um, some of the ways just is for our people to be in overall the best condition to be able to fight colonialism and to be able to organize, you know, against the system is really helping our people to have healthy food choices. Because we know that living in the black community, living in the hood, oftentimes more likely than not, there is a food desert where there aren't any choices for healthy food. 
And especially with a pandemic that became more and more important, not just because when you live in a food desert, but add to that, that you have to deal with people with resources who are hoarding food and not having access to food, period, whether you live next door to a grocery store, the shelves were empty. So just giving African people, Black people, self-determination to be able to feed ourselves and also offering healthy food cho- healthy food choices to put us in the best you know, position to be able to fight back. Oh, 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 thank you for that answer. Appreciate the analysis on that. Um, I used to actually live in the Houston area. And the African community there has been hit heavily by gentrification. Can you describe some of that? Yeah, for example, um, right in Fifth Ward, where our community garden is, which is a historical Black community, you can see the evidence of gentrification. Just, uh, <laughs> I was talking to Director Aisha of APDEP just a couple of days ago about uh, Pleasantville, which is an area that's being newly gentrified, but it's called Pleasantville, Texas. And we were talking about how they recently just added a dump as soon as you go into the city. And this is a historical black community as well. And just anything that they could do to move Africans, you know, out of the community. And we see even in the area where we bought the garden, you know, the different land that's being constantly bought, you know, and nothing is being put back into the community. Most of the time it's land that they just sit on while they try other tactics to get people out of the community. We recently had an article in the paper about the area where the garden is and just about the amount of pollution in that area and the amount of people who they believe have contracted cancer just from living in that area alone. And there's really, you know, nothing that is being done about it, but because the area is being newly gentrified as something that's being, you know, brought up. So, I mean, the evidence of gentrification is literally all over Houston you can go to the third ward and you can see like literally right across from Project Row Houses, which is the hood hood, Starbucks and stuff like that popping up and white people walking their dogs. And, you know, it's yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Wow. Um, I know the Gwen Archie Community Garden is a strategy to create liberated territory for the African community. How's the community garden an effort to force back the impact of gentrification in our community? Well, uh, like one thing I just pointed out is a lot of the land that is bought, it just sits there and it doesn't do anything for the community. It doesn't give back to the community. And our garden, number one, is something that directly works in the interest of the people in the community. And number two, it teaches us, you know, just the self-determination because the garden was largely bought by the community. You know, we fundraised $10,000 uh, through GoFundMe and other mediums just to be able to get the money to purchase the garden. So just really showing African people what we can do if we pull, pull our own resources and not in the way like these business owners do or landowners do where you grab the land up and you might just put a business there, but something that's really giving back to the community, that's organizing the community towards self-determination. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Now, a lot of my family comes from Texas and I, well, my family comes from Africa, but <laughs> they were enslaved in Texas. Now, um, I know that Africans in Texas have a vibrant uh, working class culture uh, from the blues to hip hop to, you know, the car culture, the swangas, the elbows, the vogues and all that stuff. Uh, that they've created really to define a certain uh, African working class character. Uh, But also know that in recent years, a lot of that stuff has become under target uh, by the colonial state, really as a way to drive working class African and indigenous people uh, out of uh, these communities, really to the perimeter and the the periphery of of these cities. Uh, Can you explain uh, some of that culture out there, uh, how you've experienced it, and also, uh, can you tell us something about some of those attacks? Because I know that they passed some laws recently even um, uh, to stop people from, you know, uh, driving the cars they drive and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's something that we see all over. You know, like what you said, as far as our culture constantly being attacked, no matter where we live, in an effort to, to drive us out of our community, in an effort to, you know, cut the ways that we're able to earn a living and Um, I hadn't heard about uh, the law as far as the cars, but like you said, just with the culture in general, uh, whether it's music laws, you know, noise ordinances in the area, even in Texas, like it's crazy with the, I mean, and really everywhere with the fishing laws that they have now, like you said, it's a a vibrant working class culture and you have to be creative and find all kinds of creative ways to survive. And that's for any African anywhere 
And even being here in Texas, like where you have laws against being able to braid hair, you know, being illegal. And I've always had my hair braided in somebody's kitchen, but for that to be illegal here, like it is in many areas, like when I lived in South Carolina, it was similar. When I lived in Georgia, it was similar. So yeah, I think it's kind of what you see all over our culture, like you said, just being attacked in an effort to really push us out of the community and just eliminate ways that we have just to make a living. Uh uh The African and Mexican indigenous community of Texas have a vibrant car culture that has historically united African and Mexican indigenous people against colonial white North American standards. The car culture of Texas is somewhat similar to the lowrider car culture that African and Mexican indigenous people have crafted throughout the U.S. South and Southwestern states. Referred to as slabs, these cars often don gold-rimmed white wall tires, known as Vogues, as well as overly extended wire wheels, known as swangas and elbows. In the central Texas city of Austin, white North American gentrifiers are passing laws that attack slab culture and are meant to force Black and Chicano people out of their historic communities. Slab culture is the focus of the 1998 track, Tops Drop, by the late Houston rapper Patrick Hawkins, properly known as Fat Pat. Let's take a listen.
That was the 1998 song, Tops Drop, by Fat Pat. Now, uh, last winter, a severe storm left people with busted pipes and no access to running water. How did this impact the African community in Texas? Um, so, yeah, uh, I think it was February. It was more than 4 million people that were left without power for nearly a week. You know, it was cold outside. It was winter time, And the number, they claimed it was the number of people using the electricity uh, that crashed the power grid. And it caused a lot of food and water shortages. And they also say it resulted in, I believe, around 151 deaths that were either direct or indirect. And as it can be expected, it was reported that the outages hit hardest in the black community. And in addition to all of that, our water service was disrupted. So 12 million people were without water from pipes bursting and from pipes freezing. And they we've even seen videos and pictures of people collecting water from the San Antonio Riverwalk with trash cans. And on top of that, most stores statewide couldn't keep up with the increased demand for food and grocery items. So grocery stores were closed due to lack of power. And the ones that were open didn't have basic items like bread, milk or eggs. It was crazy. I sat in my house for, I think, about three days. We had lanterns that were operated by batteries and we cooked food uh, in pots and we used our wood burning fireplace to be able to cook food. There was no heat. You know, it was freezing cold. So we slept huddled up in one bed in my house under several blankets. And yeah, the government basically responded by just rolling electricity out in so-called waves, providing electricity to one area, taking it from another area at random, and taking the water pressure down to pretty much a drip and allowing people to fend for themselves while they fought over, you know, whose fault it was. And I remember at that time, Senator Ted Cruz was all in the news for taking a trip to Cancun while people were literally dying trying to heat their homes with generators and grills. And Texas is considered the power capital of the U.S. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Texas really does underscore the colonial contradictions, the way in which there really is two Americas. Because when you look at much of the economic statistics coming out of Texas, for the white North American community, Texas is a vibrant and extremely wealthy place with places like Dallas, Houston, uh, Central Texas, San Antonio, Austin being places where there's extreme wealth. I mean, everybody's seen the show Dallas and all that other stuff, right, to, to, to understand that. But for Africans, uh, African, the African community in Texas has some of the lowest uh, living wages of any uh, community uh, in North America. Can you explain some of those uh, colonial contradictions in terms of uh, really the bifurcated living standards that Africans have versus a white North American community in Texas? Yeah, like you said, it's definitely one of those. I mean, I think for me, with Louisiana being so close, you know, (laughs) it's very similar, like how we've seen with Hurricane Katrina, like we've seen a lot of the same thing with Hurricane Harvey, like just feels like, and even with this current, you know, outage of the power, you can, I think those type of disasters make the divide a lot more obvious and a lot more clear but just, you know, riding around the streets of, of any African community and going from that community to the suburbs, like we can see the the glaring differences, just like we said, with the access to food, even the type of businesses that they choose to put in our communities, you know, as far as it being the liquor stores and payday advance places and stuff like that versus anything that would encourage commerce or even just activities for, you know, African children to be able to have something else to do, you know outside of just being home, sitting on a stoop, or just trying to have to find creative ways of creating our own basketball hoops with crates versus going to the white community where they have just unlimited access to things to do, you know, um, and just unlimited access to their own tax dollars. Like it, it seems more like their tax dollars are working for them. But when you come into the black community, there's no idea of understanding where the money goes, except to be funneled back out to the white communities where you can see you know, all of the commerce and just opportunities that are there. Uh Uh You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Chiwaniso Zolo. Uhuru Chiwa. One project you're involved in is Project Black Ankh. And I remember when Project Black Ankh was actually organizing against Hurricane Harvey and your family was directly impacted by that. Um, can you tell us about that experience? How was that? Okay, like the power outage um, and most natural disasters, it was one that disproportionately affected the Black community. 
I lived in a home about maybe 13 feet off the ground on stilts and the water came all the way up to my doorway. And I was pregnant at the time and I was eventually rescued by boat, but it wasn't without just a whole lot of effort and struggle. Um, we began calling for rescue long before the water rose to the door, but we were calling the provided emergency numbers and we had people hanging up on us, telling us things. At one point we had one of the operators tell us to call Jesus. And I, I made a video on Facebook at the direction of my leadership and Pedum and the party at the time. And while I was doing the video, I actually had a tree in my front yard that was like over a hundred feet in the air and it just cracked in half and fell across my front yard. And the video ended up going viral. And I was just overwhelmed with people offering help to make calls for me. And largely it was through that mobilization effort that eventually a boat, actually two boats arrived at my door. But a lot of people weren't that lucky. You know, I participated in a cleanup effort in the Greenspoint area. And you could just really see the devastation. You know, people were left having to gut their entire homes. They just lost everything. A lot of people in the neighborhood who lived in apartments were left homeless. Some apartments didn't even begin to clean up for months. And they left the residents to figure out the issue of the water and the mold for themselves. So and even just when I was rescued, there was an African woman that drove me to my hotel as a part of the rescue effort. And in conversation, we were making just on the ride. She told me that after she dropped me off, she had to go to work at this nursing home, which was in a, a white neighborhood and it remained unflooded. And I was just like astounded because our communities are always hit the worst. And then we even we don't even have time to catch our breath under colonialism. Oh, yeah. So that really was also an introduction of Project Black Unc into uh, the United States in many ways, uh, having uh, begun as an emergency relief program uh, on the continent. We've talked about the COVID-19 uh, response of Project Black Onk and uh, the response to Hurricane Harvey and things like that. Um, but, you know, uh, what, what do in terms of us securing our freedom, what's the political importance of something like Project Black Onk and Africans securing our freedom? I think what apt up what a lot of our programs come back to is just self-determination. And and when we talk about securing our freedom, that means on the other end that African pe- African people will be in, in a leadership position. And programs like Project Black Onk are initiation of, you know, what African people will need even on the other side. Because we've seen with Hurricane Katrina, the efforts of FEMA um, and really just no kind of concern for the black community during any disaster with any of these response, you know, so-called emergency response and relief programs. None of that has ever benefited black people out of any kind of significant way. And Project Black Onk is our response to that in order to be able to save ourselves because we can't count on the people who captured us to now come in to save us. So, I mean, number one, because of the situation we're in, what parasitic capitalism, just what it does to the planet, just destroying the planet. We're in a a position where we're constantly in need of rescue, you know, where we're constantly in need of some type of emergency response to something that parasitic capitalism has caused. And Project Black Onk is our direct answer to that, to be able to come for ourselves, to be able to have the people that we need to be able to continue to organize and to fight against this parasitic system. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Now, uh, as we noted in the introduction, Juneteenth exists as part of a larger struggle for African self-determination and African community control over history and education. Have you heard of this debate over critical race theory uh, in public schools? And if so, uh, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I have heard some about it. And I think that uh, I think the discussions around our history and what has happened to us are important discussions and they need to happen. Uh, But also just to quote Malcolm X, I believe that any person who allows their enemy to educate their children is a fool. And that's to say that it's foolish to expect the school system to teach African people anything that will overturn our conditions. The school system is designed with the intention of brainwashing our children from a young age to believe in and embrace an oppressive social structure. And furthermore, what is critical race theory? I mean, no study of racism will lead us anywhere. The only critical theory that's going to take our people beyond where we are today, beyond a Juneteenth, is African internationalism. And I think we have to take control of and responsibility over our children's education. And APDEP is helping us to do that. We understand the difficulties that African people have with working full-time jobs, often more than one at a time, and still having to find time to combat, you know, the ideas that our children are fed at school and through the colonial media. Yeah, hoo, hoo. yeah, I'd like to salute you 
uh, for all that you do. And I mean, you, you good with it. You, you really, uh, think on your feet, those, uh, cards, uh, that you created with, uh, African, uh, heroes on them. Chairman of Malaysia, Telemarcus Garvey and, uh, all, and so many others. Uh, I think Asada might be on one and things like that really are, uh, phenomenal, phenomenal, uh, tools, which really represents the genius of the African working class. And, uh, you know, why we say African women must lead. Now, you are developing your own African internationalist curriculum that goes beyond critical race theory in many ways, as you uh, just alluded to. What can you tell us about the curriculum and uh, the Marcus Garvey Youth Program that it is a part of? I'm glad you asked. Uh, The Marcus Garvey Youth Program is an African internationalist based program. And what we want to do is provide children with a scientific view of the world that allows them to objectively solve the problems of the African community, with our focus being to win a general unity with a position of African self-reliance and self-determination. And our mission is really to spark our children's interest in developing their own neighborhoods as well as African communities worldwide through our practical skill-based workshops and to also arm them with political education that they need to understand and address the contradictions in the white colonial schools and the world at large. And some of the curriculum includes um, workshops on African revolutionaries, first aid, survival skills, agriculture. We also will be having a a yearly youth camp and we'll be doing a trip to Africa for our party's Congress. We really want to just provide African children with the space outside of things like the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts to develop these type of skills and just to couple them with revolutionary theory. Uhuru, Uhuru, thanks for that. Speaking of Marcus Garvey, Let's listen to Burning Spears' 1975 track, Old Marcus Garvey, from his album entitled Marcus Garvey.
Burning Spears' 1975 track, Old Marcus Garvey. On the song, Burning Spear proclaims, No one remembers old Marcus Garvey, but here at the People's War Radio Show, we remember him. Uhuru, finally, Chiwanisa, what does a future struggle for African culture, history, and education look like to you? Uh, it looks like the African People's Socialist Party. I mean, it looks like APDEP and PETAM and AMWO. It looks like developing programs to solve our own problems. It looks like creating revolutionary culture wherever we go through things like the Musa Bantu Open Mic Nights, the Houston Juneteenth Festivals, our One Africa, One Nation Marketplace, and the many programs that APDEP has developed, like our community gardens, you know, the Marcus Garvey Youth Program, Project Black Onk, just to name a few. But the future to me is bright, it's socialist, and the road to it is painted black. And if anybody wants more information, you can email us at info at developmentforafrica.org. If you're interested in learning more about our programs and want to check out APDEP, you can go to our website, and that's www.developmentforafrica.org. You are listening to The People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today was Chiwaniso Luzolo. So we say down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. This has been the People's War Radio Show, produced by WVPU Black Power Radio at 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund. The baddest nonprofit on the planet. Whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community. And address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, health care, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's World Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. Thank you for listening. Colonial virus, mass incarceration, that's colonial virus.